0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners.
1: They were bragging that they had identified more pediatric killings than the rest of Canada put together. Well, sure they did, because none of them were right.
3: Incompetence, arrogance, thinking dirty. For decades, the chief coroner's office in Ontario was out of control. A closed shop that was impervious to complaints.
1: They did whatever the hell they wanted.
3: They destroyed lives with their staggering incompetence. And no one was more at fault than Dr. Charles Smith. Wonderful Dr. Smith. Um, I can't even refer to him as a doctor anymore. He wasn't trained. He had no idea what he was doing. As a forensic pathologist, he, he gave the police what he wanted, what the police wanted, what the Crown wanted. You want this? I'll tailor it. For 20 years, Charles Smith's shoddy investigations targeted vulnerable families, often single mothers. He saw murders where none existed. Extracting convictions and even confessions for crimes that never happened. His trail of destruction put grieving parents behind bars. Some for more than a decade.
4: They kept offering scenarios that they wanted me to agree with, um, that maybe I was overwhelmed, I was a young mother, um, I didn't have the support that I needed, and Nicholas was being particularly difficult that day, and I smothered him. So they were accusing me of having suffocated him.
3: Charles Smith was a star in pediatric pathology. Revered by police and children's aid societies, his investigations and testimony in dozens of criminal cases involving the deaths of children helped seal the fate of those accused of horrendous crimes. Defense attorneys dreaded going up against him. Smith's cases often targeted families on the margins without the means to defend themselves.
1: Smith chose his victims and they were always single ladies and they always figured they were dope addicts. They got themselves pregnant and they didn't have any uh, extended family to protect them or to work with them. So it was easy prey for him.
3: I'm Catherine Fogarty. And in this true crime podcast, Tina Pittaway brings us the stories of two families whose cases were instrumental in helping to out Smith as incompetent and unqualified. Two families who fought like hell against all odds to prove their innocence after Charles Smith accused them of murdering their children. This is Think Dirty, the disgrace of Dr. Charles Smith.
1: Smith told his victims.
3: I can't even refer to him as an officer
2: anymore. Incompetent. Arrogant. Thinking
3: dirty.
2: November thirtieth, 1995, wasn't a typical day for Leanne Gagnon. The young mother was at her home that she shared with her parents in Sudbury, Ontario, with her 11-month-old son, Nicholas. Her mother, Angie, was at work. Her father Morris, who worked as a senior manager with the provincial government, was in Toronto on business. Leanne was in her first year at Laurentian University, studying English and history. On this day, she didn't have any classes. After showering and dressing Nicholas, she gave him a bottle of pablum. The day stretched out before them. They spent the morning playing, and around 11, when Nicholas normally went down for his nap in his crib, Leanne sat with him in a rocker. He was soon sound asleep on her shoulder.
4: He was just so so warm and content sleeping on my shoulder that his naps ended up, you know, being on on my chest with me in the rocking chair rocking him.
2: Nicholas slept until almost 1 and Léanne fed him a spaghetti lunch. There had been a really big snowfall the day before. The sun was shining. So after lunch, Léanne bundled Nicholas up and took him out for his first sleigh ride
4: and he, uh, he thoroughly enjoyed it. He was just uh, sitting in, in the sleigh as I pulled him and, and looking all around really happy and smiling and, uh, and laughing. Our neighbor across the street, Lynn Monk, was actually uh, out shoveling her driveway at the time. So she, uh, she made a comment that he looked really happy and content all bundled up in his, uh, in his big blue snowsuit, wrapped up in blankets on the sleigh. So we we had just had a a beautiful day all around.
2: When they got back home, Nicholas fell asleep again on his mom's shoulder for about an hour or so. When he woke up around four, Leanne made his dinner.
4: And he was just having such a fun time exploring in the living room. He uh, He was mobile at this point in time and just loved walking around. So um, I had made him his dinner and instead of sitting him in the high chair, uh, I had allowed him to kind of just putter around and he would come to me for bites of food. Uh, So I was feeding him, he would he would go about walking around in the den and come back to me uh, for a bite.
2: The back wall of the Gagnon's den was all windows. They were low hanging and ran from one end of the room to the other. Up against one of those windows was a sewing table and atop it, Nicholas's grandmother Angie's sewing machine.
4: So he crawled underneath the sewing table to look through the window. And as he tried to stand up, he banged the top of his head on the underside of the sewing table. When he bumped his head and initially let out a a really loud, shrill cry, I went over to get him, and I mean, I, I got to him so fast that he was still in the process of letting out that first sharp cry.
2: Leanne picked Nicholas up and held him against her chest.
4: And I was just trying to soothe him, rubbing his back, and uh, I was waiting for that that gasp of air, to, that take-in of air, so he could let out another another scream. Uh, but it didn't, it, it just didn't come. So when I pulled him off my... My shoulder to look at him, his face was still just in that, that look of trying to take in that breath that wasn't happening. Yeah. Um, and then I, I started to panic.
2: Thinking that he might be choking, Leanne turned Nicholas over and gave him a few sharp smacks on his back. When that didn't make any difference, Leanne held Nicholas tight to her chest and ran, barefoot and with no coat, to the home of the neighbor she'd seen earlier on the street
4: from what I knew she was a nurse she worked at the hospital and I thought if anybody could help uh Nicholas she could so I um I walked into I ran into the house she was in the uh middle of dinner with her family and I ran into the kitchen and I just put Nicholas into into her arms and told her that he wasn't breathing and to please help and uh she, she proceeded to place him on the kitchen floor and started doing CPR.
2: Lynn's husband called 911. Leanne was hysterical, but managed to describe to Lynn what had happened. Thinking that Nicholas might have found a button near the sewing table and swallowed it, Lynn checked his airway. It was blocked. His lips were starting to turn blue. Leanne, in her panic, left the kitchen and was pacing in the driveway, waiting for the ambulance. Her father, Morris, had just turned onto their street, returning earlier than expected from his business trip. Seeing his daughter barefoot and with no coat, he rushed to her. Leanne explained how Nicholas had bumped his head and stopped breathing. Paramedics soon arrived and Nicholas was rushed to the hospital. Leanne's mother Angie met them at Sudbury General.
4: We were all waiting in the in the family waiting room um at this time and I was just in my mind telling myself he was going to be okay he was going to be okay they were going to uh they they were going to be able to take care of this and as soon as uh, a doctor walked into the room and I could see that her eyes were red rimmed and um and she just she looked very distraught i could tell right away that he didn't make it um and i think i think shock just took over i i remember just crumpling to to the ground and and screaming and crying um and doing the same thing when they brought me back to to see him after that but uh A lot of it, even, you know, to this day, it's just, it's still kind of a fog. Despite being told numerous times how the events proceeded, I just, I forget it. It's like my body won't allow me to remember it.
2: Less than an hour after Nicholas was pronounced dead, the local coroner examined him. Dr. James Deacon found no trauma or signs of injury other than those from the resuscitation efforts. The police officer heading the investigation, Sergeant Robert Keach, observed a small bump on the side of Nicholas's forehead, as well as a tiny scrape on the side of his nose. But there was nothing exceptional about those small injuries. No swelling around the bump, and the skin wasn't broken. The next day, a local pathologist, Dr. Chin Chen, did the autopsy. Dr. Chen found something called petechial hemorrhages, which are small dots of blood, around the lungs and heart. He also noticed a very slight swelling of the brain. There was nothing to indicate foul play, which was confirmed by follow-up toxicology reports. In his final report, Chen wrote that the cause of death was sudden infant death syndrome. That was a mistake. What Dr. Chen had intended to write as cause of death was sudden unexplained death. The differences between the two are fairly subtle. SIDS deaths usually occur in children under nine months while they're sleeping. SUDS deaths are slightly broader in terms of what can be considered appropriate to categorize a sudden death as unexplained. There's also nothing inherently suspicious about a finding of SUDS. Months later, this error on Nicholas Gagnol's autopsy would trigger a review of the case by Dr. Charles Smith, and unleash a devastating chapter in Leanne Gagnon's life. At Nicholas's funeral, the lineups of well-wishers stretched outside the building. The tiny boy was dressed in a 101 Dalmatians outfit that his grandfather chose.
4: My family, as well as myself, had written letters to him. We had placed little trinkets and pictures in with him as well.
2: The outpouring of support from friends and neighbours helped Leanne and her parents Morris Gagnon remembers those awful first few weeks.
1: Well, I was the only man in his life, really. And uh, he was more of a son to me than a grandson.
2: Morris had put up Christmas lights early that year, and Nicholas delighted in seeing them lit up. After Nicholas died, Morris couldn't bear to turn them on.
1: We all had our lights up, and uh, there's no way I was going to light any lights. And as it turned out, nobody in the neighborhood turned on their lights. They had them up, and nobody turned them on as a, as a tribute or in respect for, a, for our grief.
2: Six weeks after Nicholas died, the toxicology reports were all completed. The lead investigator from the Sudbury Police, Sergeant Robert Keach, called the Gagnon home to let them know that he'd concluded the investigation and the case was now closed. The Ganyaw family did their best to pick up the pieces of their shattered lives over the next few months. It was a painful road.
1: I was just totally devastated. Totally devastated. And uh, it affected my job. Uh, I eventually had to go on Prozac for about three months just to calm down.
2: Leanne threw herself into exercise to help her cope with her grief.
4: I think I lost 30 pounds in a month just running, I would, uh, I would go to the, uh, local arena and skate every day. And when skating was done, I'd go to the top of the arena and run laps. You know, there was panic attacks and, uh, just feelings of complete and utter hopelessness and, and, and despair. That was the, you know, the first initial month, which was so hard to get through. And then in time I I reconnected with an old friend, uh, who is now my husband and he was a wonderful support. Pete Tebow and
2: Leanne had dated in high school and by the summer of 1997, they were planning their wedding. One Thursday afternoon in June, the Gagnon house was a hive of activity. Leanne, her mother Angie and Pete and a few friends were getting the house ready for Leanne's bridal shower, which was two days away. Morris was in Toronto on business again
4: there was a knock at the door and uh, when I opened the door I saw the investigating officer who had spoken with me at the hospital the evening that Nicholas had passed away.
2: Sergeant Bob Keach and his partner Sergeant Dave West were there to speak with Leanne. She hadn't seen Keach since he had wrapped up the investigation into Nicholas's death nearly 18 months earlier.
4: So as soon as I saw him Um, I don't know why, but I just bursted into tears. I think seeing his face just brought back a flood of memories of that that horrible night.
2: Sergeant Keach explained that they needed Leanne to come down to the station with them.
4: They had wanted me to get into their car and go with them. So my mother was there and um, was insistent on the fact that I wasn't going to the police station with them.
2: Angie demanded to know why they wanted Leanne at the station and why they were treating her daughter like a criminal.
4: The officers
2: explained that the chief coroner's office was examining all deaths involving children throughout the province, and they just needed to ask her a few more questions.
4: And finally, between us all, uh, we negotiated that I would show up at the police station. Pete was going to uh, Pete was going to drive me there.
2: Once at the station, Keach told Pete to take a seat in the hallway. Leanne asked if he could sit with her during the interview.
4: And they said he couldn't. Uh, then they simply asked me to uh, retell the events of the, uh, the day that Nicholas passed away. And once I had, then they informed me that my story didn't make sense based on the information that they had with regards to Nicholas's autopsy results and uh, the report of a new doctor who said that Nicholas did not in fact die of a sudden unexplained death, but he had in fact passed away due to um, asphyxiation. So they were accusing me of having suffocated him. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
2: So how did Leanne go from grieving mother to a murder suspect? Unbeknownst to Leanne and her family, the coroner's office as well as the Sudbury Police had set their minds to proving this new theory about how Nicholas died that awful night in November of 1995. That autopsy report that mistakenly labeled Nicholas's cause of death as SIDS was filed about six months prior to Leanne winding up in the police station. The Sudbury coroner, James Deacon, caught the error and corrected it. He changed the cause of death from SIDS to sudden unexplained death. He saw nothing new or suspicious within the report. He simply recognized the error in categorizing the death as SIDS. But Deacon's boss, Dr. Elmer Uzens, when he saw the change, he decided to forward the case for review to the Deputy Chief Coroner for the Province of Ontario, a man by the name of Dr. Jim Cairns. From the outset, Dr. Ozens was suspicious of Leanne Gagnon's explanation of what happened the night Nicholas died. In hindsight, Dr. Uzen appears to have been confused about two key measurements of Nicholas's body in the autopsy report. As a result, he thought Nicholas was too short to have hit his head on the underside of the sewing table. He passed along his mistaken claims to Dr. Cairns, going so far as to say in his correspondence to Cairns that, quote, the death was regarded as suspicious from the beginning." There was also one other key factor that led to the case being flagged to Dr. Cairns. For years, coroners throughout the province had been encouraged to investigate all cases with an eye towards criminal activity. Starting in the late 80s, the coroner's office was worried that child abuse was widespread, yet largely going undetected. Specifically, the Ontario Chief Coroner's Office thought investigations were done too hastily, with not enough time to really confirm that they weren't criminally suspicious. Three murders that were not flagged as suspicious at the time that they happened were at the root of this new approach. The most well-known case was that of Tammy Homolka. Tammy was the 15-year-old sister of convicted murderer Carla Homolka, coroners and pathologists who examined Tammy Homolka's body missed signs of criminality including a large burn on her face that was the result of a liquid anesthetic her sister administered to her. Tammy Homolka's death was originally deemed a result of an asthma attack when in fact she choked to death on her own vomit while she was unconscious. Driven by a fear that murders were slipping by unnoticed In 1994, there was a new directive from the chief coroner's office. Think dirty. New coroners would be trained to approach cases with suspicion, and they were to assume all deaths were homicides until they were satisfied that they weren't. And it's through this lens that Dr. Charles Smith viewed Nicholas's autopsy when it landed on his desk. Leanne didn't know who this new doctor was.
4: They just said that he was a head pediatric pathologist in Toronto, and he was responsible for overviewing unexplained child deaths for the province. They kept offering scenarios that they wanted me to agree with, um, that maybe I was overwhelmed, I was a young mother, um, I didn't have the support that I needed, and Nicholas was being particularly difficult that day, and I smothered him. Um, So they they kept telling me that I needed to admit to this type of thing happening.
2: Leanne's interrogation would go on for more than two hours.
4: I started putting uh, forth scenarios that maybe this happened or maybe this happened. At one point I said, um, you know, a couple of days before I had him having his bottle and I was trying to take a quick shower. And when I got out of the shower, I had noticed that he had gone underneath the sink and he had grabbed a can of, of um, cleaner. I said, is it possible he ingested some of that and it had an effect? And they said, no, that's not what it could have been. And I suggested after that, well, when, you know, I noticed Nicholas couldn't take a second breath and I ran him across the street to Lynn's house. I held him very, very tight to my chest. Could I have done something at that point? And again, they said, no, that's not what, ha- that's not what happened. And they were just very adamant that I had caused Nicholas's death, and I needed to explain it.
1: This was all based on uh, Charles Smith saying, oh, I think it might be honest. He kept saying, unless they can prove otherwise, I'm I'm of the opinion that. In other words, it was, the onus was on us to prove our innocence, which is ridiculous.
4: I still didn't quite know who Charles Smith was. It wasn't until, I believe, um, my father started looking into who this person was, what his qualifications were, and why he had decided to, to look into our case, that I knew who Charles Smith was, and that he was a doctor that the province had um, hired to spearhead an investigation into all unexplained Um, pediatric
2: deaths for the province of Ontario. Throughout the 1990s, Charles Smith was the head of the Ontario Pediatric Forensic Pathology Unit at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. In a career that spanned 24 years at SickKids, Smith had conducted more than 1,000 autopsies on children, more than any other pathologist in the country. It's grim work. Partly due to the nature of the job, there aren't many pediatric forensic pathologists. A pathologist's job is to study diseases and illnesses through examining things like organs, tissues, cells, and bones. Autopsy reports include a mixture of fact and opinions based on those facts. Pathologists' findings, both the facts and the opinions, can have a huge sway in criminal investigations. They can be the deciding factor in whether police intensify their investigations. And just as the strength of evidence police gather is weighed by Crown attorneys, the opinions of coroners, their interpretation of the evidence, can make or break cases against suspects. So when the most experienced pediatric forensic pathologist in the country reviews an autopsy, investigators pay close attention. And in the mid-90s, Dr. Charles Smith was digging into a lot of cases. That's because the office's think-dirty approach ushered in a few key changes within the coroner's office. Every child death in Ontario that was attributed to either sudden infant death syndrome or sudden unexplained death was automatically sent to the Pediatric Death Review Committee. Dr. Jim Cairns chaired that committee. Concerned that child abuse was going undetected in child deaths, Cairns and the committee created a new policy, Memorandum 631. This new policy was sent to all police services across the province, as well as all coroners and pathologists. Memorandum 631 introduced new protocols to apply to all sudden or unexplained deaths of children under two. It reads, Unfortunately, in this day and age, child abuse is a real issue. And it is extremely important that all members of the investigation team think dirty. Think Dirty was capitalized. It goes on. They must actively investigate each case as potential child abuse and not come to a premature conclusion regarding the cause and manner of death until the complete investigation is finished and all members of the team are satisfied with the conclusion. It was into this environment, one of suspicion and thinking dirty, that Nicholas Gagnon's autopsy was sent for review to the PDRC. Dr. Charles Smith was assigned the review. He asked two radiologists at the Hospital for Sick Children to review evidence, including microscopic slides and x-rays. Dr. Paul Babin was tasked with reviewing the x-rays, a job he was more than qualified to do as the acting chief of the hospital's Department of Diagnostic Imaging. Babin described what he characterized as mild diastasis, which means widening, of the skull sutures. That could be a sign of a skull fracture, but Babin noted that the quality of the x-rays he was viewing was so poor, he could not make a definitive call on it. He recommended consulting the original x-rays. Babin also noted a possible fracture at the back of Nicholas's left jawbone. Summarizing Babin's findings in his written report, Charles Smith removed any aspect of caution on Babin's part. The mild diastasis Babin described was changed to splitting of the skull sutures in Smith's report. The suspected jaw fracture was no longer suspected, awaiting confirmation through better imaging. Smith referred to it in his report as a jaw fracture. The concerns over the quality of x-rays was mentioned in Smith's report, but he said the bad imaging only impacted the evaluation of extremities, suggesting even more fractures might be present. This kind of misrepresentation of evidence would become even more extreme one year later when Smith swore in an affidavit that the skull sutures were, quote, widely split. Smith's report rejected almost the entirety of Dr. Chen's original autopsy findings and said Nicholas had died as a result of a head injury. Smith wrote In the absence of an alternative explanation, the death of this young boy is attributed to blunt head injury. On January 28, 1997, 14 months after Nicholas Gagnon's sudden death, Charles Smith flew to Sudbury to meet with police. Five officers, along with two coroners, Dr. Deacon, who had adjusted the error in Chen's autopsy report, and Dr. Uzun, the regional coroner, suspicious of Leanne's story from the outset, all gathered in Chief Alex McCauley's office. Smith presented them with his findings. Nicholas Gagnon had died from blunt force trauma. He told those present, and he based his findings on five pillars. The split skull sutures and the fractured jawbone, neither of which were accurate assessments, were two of his pillars. The other three included swelling of the brain, an increased head circumference that was the result of the alleged brain swelling, and a scalp injury. The original lead investigator, Sergeant Bob Keach, again took the lead. Sergeant Leo Thibault was also on the team. Thibault, in a twist that can sometimes happen in smaller communities, was the uncle of Leanne's fiance, Pete Thibault. Keach and Thibault took Dr. Smith to Sudbury General to gather original evidence from Dr. Chen. This included X-rays as well as brain tissue, which Smith needed to bolster his claims about brain swelling that would have resulted from a blow to the head. Warrants were also obtained for Nicholas's medical records Smith had listed an increased head circumference as one of his five pillars underpinning his blunt force trauma theory. Nicholas's growth records would help shore up that theory. Smith returned to Toronto, and it's there that his pillars began to fall. First, the original X-rays. Smith had changed Babin's assessment, claiming there was a splitting of the skull sutures.
1: The biggest thing that he started off with is that The brain sutures had been ripped and torn apart, like you really got a blow to the head. Well, they were not torn, they were just normal.
2: This did nothing to diminish Smith's suspicions. Smith insisted that it was impossible to say a fracture hadn't occurred. They just couldn't see evidence of one. In April, three months after opening a homicide investigation based on Smith's theory, Sergeant Keach pressed Smith for answers on where the evidence stood in regards to the brain swelling. The brain swelling was tied to Smith's theory of blunt force trauma, but Keach was concerned about the lack of evidence demonstrating that that had happened. Smith told Keach that the brain swelling was acute and that trauma or asphyxia or even poisoning could cause that. Could the brain swelling have been caused by choking? Keach asked reminding Smith that the paramedic said there was a blockage in Nicholas's throat. Smith assured him that no, the brain swelling wasn't related to that. Smith said he'd have his follow-up report ready in a couple of weeks, and they'd gather in Sudbury then to discuss next steps. In May, Smith and his boss, Dr. Jim Cairns, flew to Sudbury. In this meeting, Sergeant Keach presented Smith and Cairns with Nicholas's growth chart, which he'd obtained via warrant from Nicholas's doctor. Nicholas's growth chart indicated he had a large head. The swelling that Smith had insisted was present, brain swelling that was never mentioned in Chen's original autopsy, it never existed.
1: The edema in the brain, the swelling of the brain was reflected in the size of his head. That was the size of his head. His head was exactly the size it's supposed to be from from birth because he had had his head measurement and there had been no swelling. So there were two, two of his pillars right there that fell apart.
2: Sergeant Keach was getting nervous. While he was grateful to be investigating the case, given his original investigation could have allowed a child's murder to go unpunished, he wasn't able to pinpoint anything specific they had missed. Keach put together a list of 18 issues and questions for Smith. None of the specifics are available to review, no one took notes at the meeting, but they covered things like Leanne mentioning Nicholas having a hard time sleeping through the night in the days prior to his death. Could that have an effect? There was a nasty tumble he took a few weeks prior that Leanne thought led him to being a bit wobbly on his feet at times.
1: Yeah, he'd, uh, he'd fell, whacked his head on a coffee table. You gotta remember, Nicholas was walking at 10 months. And uh, he had quite a quite a shiner. So we offered up that, well, is there any chance that the second fall aggravated the first fall? You know, like uh, if, if somebody has uh, a concussion, another concussion would be, you know, very serious. <laughs> so we, we, we put that to them, we cooperated as much as we could until we found out that uh, no matter what you said, that they were going to continue on their track.
2: All of these scenarios had been around since day one. Leanne shared all of this with Keech in his original investigation. Smith didn't have answers for everything, but he was still adamant about one thing. Nicholas Gagnon's death was not due to natural causes. And to help prove it, Smith wanted to exhume the body. On the next episode
3: of Think Dirty, the disgrace of Dr. Charles Smith... Leanne and her parents are devastated as the case against her intensifies. And a shocking scene unfolds when Nicholas's body is exhumed for a second autopsy.
4: And I could see in the distance that amongst the the adults that were there, there was a young child and he had toys that looked like, like trucks and things like that. And he was playing in the mounds of dirt that had been dug up out of my son's grave, and I remember, just I was infuriated to the point of tears. And I had asked um, the officer who that was, and he wouldn't he wouldn't answer me.
3: For Leanne's father, Morris Gagnon, something about Doctor Smith just didn't feel right.
4: My father found out that the child that was playing in the dirt was, in fact, Doctor Charles Smith's son who he had brought with him to uh, to this exhumation.
3: But this grieving grandfather was not prepared to back down.
4: My father started um, looking into Dr. Smith and his credentials and his employers, uh, Dr. Cairns, were starting to circle the wagons. They were going to support each other.
1: When the chief coroner called me, I remember telling him, You just picked on the wrong guy this time.
2: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Tina Pitaway. Executive producer is Catherine Fogarty audio production is by daniel borgers at borgers music visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts and check us out on facebook instagram and twitter if you enjoyed this story and others please subscribe on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app
4: and feel free to leave us a review we appreciate you listening